So right before this social distancing began, I introduced a new sermon series entitled Living on Purpose. And off and on during these past few weeks, we have been engaged in this series. And the whole goal of this series has been to uncover God's purpose for our lives. And throughout the series, we've talked about how we are intended for His image and we are planned for His pleasure. We're designed for His defense, we're made for His mission, and we're saved for His service. Well, today we're going to conclude this series by talking about how we are formed for His family. You know, family language is used all throughout the New Testament. God is consistently uh, referred to as a father, and Christians are consistently referred to as children of His and heirs of His. That terminology leads several authors in the New Testament to refer to their fellow Christians as brothers and sisters. And I want to just call your attention to a couple of passages as we get started to just highlight this family language we see throughout the New Testament. For instance, in Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 26, Paul said that in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. In verse 27, he has, because for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And in verse 29, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. You can see in Galatians chapter 3 the use of, of the terminology of being sons of God and the heirs of the promise. And, and therein lies this family language related to the church. Then in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 19, Paul said that when you become a child of God, you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Members of the household of God. There is that family language again used in reference to the church. And, and, and what Paul makes very clear here is that when you become a Christian, you become a part of the family, God's family. See, today what we want to focus on is the fact that, that we were formed for His family. That's part of our purpose as well. And here's the thing about this family dynamic. It has always been a part of God's plan. Consider what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 5. He said that God predestined us for adoption to Himself as the sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. In other words, Paul indicated that, that since the beginning of time, it's always been God's will to include us in His family. We were formed for His family. We need to understand that aspect of our purpose as well. And so, today, let's talk about what it means to be formed for His family. I want to begin with a couple of observations that God uh, a couple of observations about how God made us. First, God made humans relational. God made humans relational. One second here. Now think about this for a moment. Uh-oh, my slide is missing. So let's just go back to this. When God created the world, He indicated that every aspect of His creation was good. 
Seven different times during the creation process, if you look at Genesis chapter 1, seven different times God looked at what He made and pronounced it to be good. And then at the conclusion of creation, or at least at the conclusion of the sixth day of creation, God looked at everything He had made and saw that it was very good. But then you get over to Genesis chapter 2 and something interesting happens. In Genesis chapter 2, we're told that God looked at man, and this is in verse 18, God looked at man and realized that, that something wasn't right. Something wasn't, in fact, good. And that which was not good was the fact that man was alone. You see, the only thing in all of creation that was deemed not good was man's aloneness. And so God sought to correct that. See, the reason man's being alone was not good is because God made man a relational being. You know how we know that? We know that. We know that because God made us in his image. You see that back in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26 when he said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Certainly you notice the plural pronoun being used in that passage. Our image, our likeness. That's very interesting because it's an allusion to the fact that God exists in three equal but distinct persons that we typically refer to as the Godhead or the Trinity. We're talking about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit who, who, who make up a unique relationship that constitutes the Godhead. So in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27... When it says God created man in his own image, I, I don't just think it's referring to the fact that we have been given a soul. I think it's also referring to the fact that we have been created to exist in community. God instilled within us the need for relationships. Because we're made in the image of a relational being. Think about it this way. What constitutes a perfect existence? Is a, a, a perfect existence? is a perfect existence life without problems? Is a perfect existence the absence of the effects of evil? Is a, a perfect existence life without shame and remorse and sin? Would you say that that constitutes perfect existence? Well, here's the thing. There was someone who experienced that kind of life at a point in time. He lived in paradise and he enjoyed perfect communion with God and he was not in a state of sin, did not experience shame or remorse or guilt in any way, shape, or form. Yet despite living in a problemless paradise and being in perfect communion with the Heavenly Father... God looked at his situation and said it wasn't perfect because he was alone. And so he made a helper for him. Here's the point. God may have designed some of us to remain single in this life, but he did not intend for any of us 
did not design any of us to live solo. There's a story about Emperor Frederick II, who was the ruler of the Holy Roman Empire during the 13th century. And he was notorious for carrying out what today would be considered unethical science experiments on people. One of his experiences, excuse me, one of his experiments was born out of his desire to discover what the original language of Adam and Eve was. So he took babies and he put them in the care of select nurses who were instructed not to interact with the children other than when strictly necessary. That means they, they weren't supposed to interact with those kids unless it involved feeding them, bathing them, uh, that sort of thing. And those nurses followed those rules. Those nurses took care of those babies' basic needs, but they never spoke to those children. They never sang to them. They never cooed to them. They never made a sound. All because those were the instructions given to them by the emperor. And according to tradition, within one year, every single one of those babies died. Not from lack of food, not from lack of medical attention, not uh, from, from lack of hygiene, but from a lack of relationship, from a, a lack of interaction. And, and I know some of you right now, as we've been social distancing for so long, you feel like you might die from a lack of interaction at some point. But here's the thing, that story... That unethical science experiment shows just how much we need relationships. And not only does that story demonstrate this, but so does the life of Jesus. Jesus modeled for us that God made us relational. See, Jesus lived for over 30 years as a single man, but he was never a solo man. He was never married, but he was rarely alone. He intentionally existed in community by choosing a group of people to accompany him, to work alongside him, to share life with him. And it's very interesting when you consider what Jesus did when he sent his disciples out on campaigns, he always sent them in pairs. In Mark chapter 6 and verse 7, Jesus sent the 12 apostles on a campaign to proclaim that people should repent and, and, and to confirm their message by performing these various miracles. And we're told that when he sent them out, he did so by putting them in groups of two. No one went solo. And then in Luke chapter 10 and verse 1, Jesus appointed 72 disciples to go ahead of him in every town and every place where he was about to go so that they could teach about the kingdom and, they, and, and their teaching would be confirmed by miracles as well. And we're told that he sent them two by two. Once again, no one went solo. So when we look to the one who modeled life for us, we see a life that needed relationships. Think about the Garden of Gethsemane. And when he's there praying 
agonizingly praying about his upcoming situation. And he keeps going back to Peter, James, and John and asking them to pray with him. He's in search of that relationship. Jesus may have lived his life as a single man, but he was never alone. And his life is an example of the fact that God made humans relational. But God also made discipleship communal. And this was no accident. I believe God created discipleship this way on purpose. Because I believe God understood that there is strength in numbers. Solomon summarized this truth in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9-12, through 12, when he wrote, Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls, and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. See, because God made us relational beings, He knew that our faith would be stronger collectively than it would be individually. So you know what He did? One minister summarized it this way. He said He deployed His people into local spiritual families. Think about it. If you go to the Old Testament, His his people were identified through a family that was made up of clans and tribes that were all associated with Abraham. In the New Testament, God's people are identified through a family made up of individual congregations that are associated with His church. So whether you're looking at the Old Covenant or the New Covenant, it's apparent that God intends for faith to be lived out in community. And that means that following God, that that being a disciple, that, that faithful obedience to His will, not only necessitates believing, it also necessitates belonging. What I mean is this, you can't be a child of God without believing in Him, but you also can't be a child of God without belonging to a community of believers. I've mentioned this before, but there are over 30 New Testament commands that you can't obey unless you're part of a church family. These these commands are framed as one another statements. Now, I didn't list all the verses to be able to put up on on a slide, but you can find them on the handout if you want to review all of these passages. But for instance, you're going to come to Romans chapter 12 and verse 10. It's going to tell you to love one another and outdo one another in showing honor. Romans chapter 12 and verse 16 will say, live in harmony with one another. Romans chapter 15 and verse 7 calls on us to welcome one another. Verse 14 of that same chapter calls on us to instruct one another. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 25, we're told to care for one another. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13, serve one another. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 2, bear one another's burdens. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32 tells us to be kind to one another and to forgive one another. And Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 21 calls on us to submit to one another. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 11 instructs us to build one another up. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 13 instructs us to encourage one another. And Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 24 calls on us to stir up one another. And then you've got James chapter 5 and verse 16, which tells us to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another. And finally, 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 9, which tells us to show hospitality to one another. All of these one another passages 
exhibit an expectation of community. In other words, you can't fulfill the one another commands without interacting with other people. Therefore, the one another commands teach us that following God is communal. So while faith in in, in Christ Jesus as our Savior is a personal decision, it's not a private experience. In other words, nobody can believe in Jesus for you because your faith is a personal decision. But once your faith is confessed, you cannot live that out in a private way because you are placed into the family of God. We have to remember that it has always been God's purpose to build a family, to adopt us into His family. That's the expectation. And so God has made us as humans relational, and He's made discipleship communal, and that is the implication or the implication of those things, I should say, is that we were formed for His family. Now, I want you to consider with me today, why does God care about a spiritual family? Why did God create a spiritual family? Why did He form us for family? Well, first, I believe God uses spiritual families because they protect one another. You know, when I think of spiritual protection, I automatically think of the armor of God. You might as well. And it's outlined for us in Ephesians chapter 6, and it begins with this this initial statement in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 11, where we're told to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So Paul indicates that, that in order for us to be able to stand up to the devil... We need to be equipped with the armor of God. He goes on to identify that armor as the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the the sword of the Spirit. And in our minds, we come away from that chapter thinking that if we've equipped ourselves with those things, then we're ready to face off with Satan. But I think there's more to our protective gear than that. See, Paul says something interesting. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 and 28. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 and 28. Paul calls on us to to let our manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether, whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened at anything by your opponents. Now, the reason I think that passage is important is because there is an implication here that Paul is saying. He's implying that we're not expected to stand alone. He calls on the church in Philippi and and by inspiration, the church universal to stand together in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side. And so I, I, I think what we can take away from that is that the final piece of the armor of God is fellow soldiers. Ephesians 6 doesn't specifically mention it because I think it's implied throughout that letter, but we are not expected to take on Satan alone. We are not individual rogue operatives expected to fight this spiritual warfare all by ourselves. We're part of an army and our local congregation is our unit deployed in this particular location to stand together. And that means that our spiritual family provides protection for us. And we need the protection of our church family. Because when we are alone, 
we are the most susceptible to Satan's attacks. Think about these examples for a moment. When did Elijah grow discouraged in his ministry? If you look at 1 Kings chapter 19, you'll find out that it was when he was fleeing from Jezebel and he thought he was the only zealous follower of God left alive. When did John the Baptist start to question Jesus' identity? If you look at Matthew chapter 11, it was when he was isolated in prison. When did David reach his low point? It was when, due to Saul's threats against his life, he found himself hiding in a cave, separated from his family, separated from his mentor, separated from his best friend. And when did Jesus, when did he face a series of temptations from the devil? Go to Matthew chapter 4, it was when he was alone in the wilderness. See, all of those examples show us that the most difficult days for the Son of God and for those biblical heroes, the most difficult days for them spiritually were the days when they were alone. Maybe that's why the Bible identifies Satan as a lion. You know, it's 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 10 that refers to the devil as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now think about the hunting tactic of a lion for just a moment. Lions are patient hunters. They wait to attack an animal when it is at its most vulnerable state. The lion's primary hunting tactic is to separate its prey from the herd, and then when the prey is by itself, it overpowers the lone creature with its strength. I believe a significant lesson for us to take away from the lion metaphor is that isolation makes us vulnerable to Satan's attack. And therefore, we need to be cognizant of the precarious situation in, in isolation that we put ourselves in. I think that's why the author of Hebrews instructs us in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25 to not neglect meeting together. Because there is safety in numbers. And one reason God formed us for a family is because He intends for us to find protection from one another within the confines of His family. But that's not the only reason. I believe God also employs spiritual families and uses spiritual families because they appreciate one another. Think about healthy families for a moment. A healthy family will be a part of your major life events, particularly those events that involve both success and heartbreak. In healthy families, the, the members of the family tend to be the primary people present for the celebrations of life, like birthdays and holidays, weddings, graduations, and births. But also in healthy families, the members of the family tend to be the primary people present when you face scary or, or painful events, such as a hospitalization or a funeral. My point is that in healthy families, your family members are the ones who are present for the ups and the downs of life. They know what you're going through, and they're present to support you. It's for this reason that we can say that, that families appreciate one another. They understand what you're experiencing. They sympathize with your hurts. They celebrate your victories. And it's God's intent that the church, the spiritual family, 
appreciates one another in the same way. You know, if you go to Romans chapter 12, Paul speaks a lot about the body of Christ. He indicated that, that the church is one body comprised of many members. He says they don't all have the same function, but they are nonetheless members of one another. He then goes on to instruct the church to, to use the gifts that they had been given for the benefit of the church collectively. And throughout the remainder of Romans chapter 12, he provides additional instructions about relationships in the body of Christ. So as I alluded to earlier, he says in verse 10 that we are to love one another with brotherly affection. In verse 13, we'll talk about this a little bit more in a moment, but he, he calls on the church to contribute to the needs of the saints. And in verse 16 of chapter 12, Paul also calls on, on, on uh, members of the body of Christ to live in harmony with one another. But here's what I find interesting. Immediately before that call for harmony, Paul says this in Romans chapter 12 and verse 15. He says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. That, that instruction seems so simple, so benign, so automatically understood. It's basically calling on Christians to celebrate one another's successes and sympathize with one another's pains. But underlying this small instruction is a big expectation. I like the way that, that one commentator described this passage. He said this, Romans chapter 12 and verse 15 presupposes a closeness between members of the church. This closeness cannot be achieved merely by partaking of the Lord's Supper with other Christians each week. It is not accomplished by simply meeting together for worship several times each week. It does not even come about by chatting with each other before and after Bible classes and worship services. All these are important, but this verse calls for more. It requires that Christians, even those who are not naturally outgoing, become deeply involved in one another's lives. And here's the thing. This isn't the only place in Scripture where this expectation is present. Look at how Paul expected this instruction to manifest itself in the life of the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 26. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 26, in a passage that has many crossovers with Romans chapter 12, Paul said this, If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Paul is saying that the church is to be a people who enter into both the joys and the sorrows of each other's lives. He's calling for this positive, intimate participation in one another's lives. So when Paul talks about rejoicing with each other and weeping or suffering with each other, he's calling for Christians to be so involved in one another's lives, so connected with one another, so concerned about one another, that they are aware of each other's successes and pains, triumphs and tragedies, wins and losses. There is no greater harmony between people than when they are able to celebrate and sympathize with each other. And so God also uses families, spiritual families, because they can appreciate one another. When they develop the expected intimate relationships that God calls for in Scripture, they will be able to understand what each other are going through. 
know when it's happening and be there to support one another or celebrate with one another, depending on the situation. God expects for us as members of his family to appreciate one another to that degree. And God also expects us to assist one another. Because God uses spiritual families because they assist one another. Throughout the book of Acts, the church is depicted as a people who, who met the needs of each other. So in Acts chapter 2, verse 44 and 45, we're told that all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Then in Acts chapter 4 and verse 32, we're told that among the believers, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. A couple of verses later in Acts 4, verse 34 and 35, we're told that there wasn't a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. You can also see them meeting each other's needs in Acts chapter 6, in the first six verses, when the apostles appointed seven men to oversee the distribution of food to widows. And you can also see it in Acts chapter 11, verses 27 through 30, when the church in Antioch learned through a prophecy that a famine was coming. So their members, the members of that congregation in Antioch, pulled some money together and sent relief to the brothers living in Judea via Barnabas and Paul. So throughout the book of Acts, you see the church understand their role in assisting each other's physical and material needs. And that coincides with some instructions that Paul gave. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 13, as we saw a moment ago, Paul instructed Christians to contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10, Paul said, As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And so the point is this. The point is that the first century church understood that they had a responsibility to take care of one another, to assist one another, to meet one another's needs. And thus far, I've, I've focused on physical and material assistance here, but I must acknowledge the fact that assistance included spiritual help as well. Now, back on March 29th, as part of this Living on Purpose series, I did a lesson called Intended for His Image. And in that lesson, I talked about how a spiritual family will encourage you to succeed and a spiritual family will correct you when you err. I don't want to rehash all of that material again, but it's worth mentioning today that, that we need a spiritual family to encourage us so that we don't lose our sensitivity to sin, so that we will be motivated to do what's spiritually healthy, and so that we'll be comforted in times of distress. That's why... Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 13 calls on us to encourage one another daily. And we also need a spiritual family to intervene on our behalf when we deviate from God's will. That's why Romans chapter 15 and verse 14 instructs us to admonish one another. So when I look at the first century church, it's adhering to instructions that were given to it about meeting one another's needs physically and it adheres to instructions about meeting one another's needs spiritually as well. See, in order for, this to be, for, in order for us to be this kind of family, we have to change our perspective about church. We can sit here and talk about the fact 
that the New Testament calls on the church to meet one another's needs, to assist one another, both physically and spiritually. But in order for us to adopt that mentality, in order for us to fully grasp and obey those instructions, we have to stop seeing church as a place we go to a few times a week and start seeing church as a family in which we live each and every day. I like the way one preacher put it. He said, attenders tend to be consumers, but family members tend to be contributors. Because in a family, a family gives of its time, its resources, its abilities, and its its energy to help other family members. That's why God created a family. So that they'll take care of one another. So that they'll help each other. So that they'll assist each other. So let me ask you something today. Are you an attender? Or are you a member? Are you a consumer or are you a contributor? Are you contributing to the needs of the saints? Are you doing good to those who are of the household of faith? Are you encouraging one another? Are you admonishing one another? Because if you're not doing those things, then you may not be functioning like a member of the family. And God formed us for his family. I've talked about geese before, but I want to remind you about Canadian geese for a moment. They are well known for that aerodynamic V formation they use when flying. In this formation, they can fly up to 1,500 miles in 24 hours. Now, the primary purpose of the V formation is to assist with wind resistance and flight fatigue. The way it works is that every bird flies slightly higher than the bird in front of it. This is called the upwash position, if I understand correctly. And it assists each bird with supporting its own weight and flight because they are utilizing the rising air that comes off the wings of the bird in front of them. Now, it may sound unfair to the bird who's up in the front because he's not getting any help from any other birds because he's in the lead. Well, apparently the geese have thought about that because the geese switch positions during flight. When the lead bird, as well as the birds on the tips of the V formation, get tired, the entire formation apparently rotates in a cyclical fashion and thereby they distribute the flight fatigue equally among its members. That V formation is so effective that a group of 25 birds can reduce their drag by 65% and increase their range of flight by 71% over flying alone. But there's another reason that geese fly in V formation. It's not just to, to help with fatigue and to increase their distance. They also fly in the V formation because by maintaining that formation, every bird in the group is in the field of vision for all other members. This is important as geese work and live in family groups. Geese mate for life, much like God intended for us as humans. And the parents, they fly with the young of that year. So apparently if you watch a large flock of geese come in for a landing, you can see the different family units peel off into small clusters before they alight. 
And, but the formation is important to the flock because it allows these individual families to watch out for one another. See, God gave us something in nature to look at, to learn from. He formed us for His family. And so the question you ultimately have to ask yourself this morning is are you in formation or are you out of formation? You may not think it really matters, but it does. Because God created you to be part of a flock that protects each other, that appreciates each other, and that assists each other. So the question of this morning is, are you part of the family? If not, we made reference to Galatians chapter 3 earlier today. And in Galatians chapter 3, we find out that you become a, a son of God when you are baptized into Christ, when you put on Christ. Maybe that's a decision you need to make so that you can reap the benefits of being part of God's family today. Please, if that's the decision you need to make, reach out to one of our ministers, reach out to one of our elders, because we'd love to make those arrangements with you. And we will not hesitate to do so. Maybe today you are a member of the family of God, but you look at yourself and realize that, that you're not providing assistance to anyone. You're not celebrating and sympathizing with people in their times of joy and in their times of sorrow. Maybe you even realize that you're not helping to protect the other members of your family. Maybe you realize that you're not in formation like you're supposed to be. And you've been trying to do this whole spiritual journey thing all by yourself, even though you became a child of God and entered His family. And you need to repent of your isolation. Please, again, reach out to one of the ministers, one of the elders. Let us pray with you. Let this family surround you in love. Lift you up to God in prayer. Let us help. Maybe you're struggling right now. And you just need to talk to somebody. And that's why we're here. We're a family that loves one another. Let us show that to you today.